Keith here. When I started making the first episode of, I had no experience doing podcast interviews, especially the technical side of things. It was a lot of confusing steps, setting up double enders or making do with low quality recordings on whatever app I could figure out. But it got a whole lot easier when I started using Zencaster. Made for podcasts with Zencaster, it's so easy to do everything. You and your guests log in with a browser and record studio quality sound and up to 4K video, even with an unstable connection. And it's an all-in-one deal. You don't need a lot of different tools or services. With Zencaster, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and other major platforms. If you've ever thought about making your own podcast, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TFEO and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story on Zencaster. Hey, it's Keith. If you're a lover of audio drama like I am, you need to know about the Apollo app. Apollo is designed around audio drama, so finding your next story is easy. You can always listen through Apollo for free, but there's also the Apollo Plus subscription. With it, you get ad-free listening, exclusives, and other bonus content for over 40 shows. And 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes to those creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or apollopods.com. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, audio drama producer and podcaster. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about their show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of Diana's Monster. You're listening to Diana's Monster, the story of Diana Edith Harris and the events that transpired on July 23rd, 1993 in the town of Evanston, Texas. These include the death of at least seven and the disappearance of two, as well as my own birth. My name is Martin Cruz, and I'm searching for my biological parents. My connection to Diana Harris is unknown. In fact, it's entirely possible there isn't any. I'll be telling the story as it happens, so if you haven't already, go back and start at the beginning. Written and produced by Kevin Brandon. Diana's Monster is a fictionalized, true-crime-style podcast. The story follows a young man, Martin Cruz, who is voiced by Brandon, searching for his biological parents, uncovering a mystery about a woman named Diana Harris, and the connection they both share to a tiny Texas town. Many people in the town believed that Diana was a literal monster, or, perhaps in a fit of revenge, unleashed one, which resulted in seven deaths in a terrible fire. Diana's Monster has three seasons, with the show evolving and changing narrators over time. Brandon is also a producer on the audio drama Batman Stained Air. I spoke to Kevin remotely from his home in Texas. Why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself as an artist and a creative type? I knew pretty early on, I would say maybe about second grade, um, that I wanted to do something in the the space of storytelling. I would sit under the playground at my elementary school here in San Antonio and uh, would have like like a little notebook that I would just kind of like write scary stories on. It wasn't sand or even like that weird tar stuff. It was like 
that that powdery gravel. <laughs> so okay, sure. My, yeah, yeah my, my pants would be covered in like the gravel dust, but I'd be <laughs> under there writing stories. And um, I started writing scary stories, a lot of really bad ghost stories. But from there, I knew that I wanted to tell stories. For a while, I wanted to be on the evening news. Uh, there, there was just something appealing about that. And then I decided I'd rather be behind the camera. So I definitely um, have always loved storytelling, kind of that escapism. While my siblings would be playing with their friends or skateboarding, I would be uh, reading a book in the hallway of our tiny apartment because it had the best lighting. So <laughs> definitely always wanted to to get out of where I was. Not like I had a bad childhood, but there's four of us and my mom was a single mother. I feel like I definitely needed the escape sometimes and, and telling stories was was definitely how I got that. You said you wrote scary stories. Was was horror your favorite genre? Yes. I don't care how bad it is or how cheesy. In high school, I used to have movie nights at my house. So it was about me and 12 of my friends. I know it feels like that feels like a brag. I had 12 friends in high school and uh, we would just watch like these really bad B movies from Blockbuster. Um, <laughs> and then I ended up working yeah. at that Blockbuster later in life before it closed down. That's awesome. What happened next with your desire to be creative in your writing? Did you parlay that into something in college? I did go to San Antonio College here in San Antonio, where I'm, where I'm at, and um, I studied radio, television, broadcasting. So I got to write, edit, shoot a couple of shorts, got to act in some, some really bad short films. Um, <laughs> and then from there, I tried to do the whole YouTube thing. Unfortunately, I don't have enough dedication. Like there's a lot to balance. And to do YouTube full time, you have to, you really have to do YouTube full time. Yeah. And um, I just, as much as I love it as like a hobby, it's not something that's going to be like lucrative for me as a career. Yeah, I just kind of floundered for a bit, worked at uh, a grocery store, worked at Six Flags, like I said, worked at Blockbuster. Of course, at the grocery store, um, they hire as young as like 16 in some cases. Sure. So um, I would be in the break room while people would be doing homework and they would ask me for help because they knew that I like to write. So just kind of a lot of um, helping students write essays or kind of revise and edit. And someone was just like, hey, you're really good at this. Uh, you should be a teacher. <laughs> and this sort of like spark hit. And I was like, oh, yeah, I should be a teacher. And so hmm. uh, it took several years later for me to get back into college because I had dropped out. Then I said, you know, if I'm going back to school, I'm going to I'm going to do it right. Got my license to teach. And now I teach high school uh, 12th grade English or well, 11th to 12th. And then I actually run the creative writing club at my high school. So how do you go from starting as a filmmaker and then to English teacher into audio drama? So the audio drama happened while I was floundering. <laughs> so back in 2016 or so, um, I was kind of just burnt out of trying to do YouTube. I had done a couple of short projects. Scheduling was the biggest issue with with doing those little YouTube series. And so I was listening to a lot of audio dramas at the time because I was working overnight, listening to like Alice Isn't Dead, a lot of audio dramas. And I was like, you know, I bet I could do this. And sort of that, that sort of became the challenge to myself. And then I started doing this and I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I can't do this. But um, I kept pushing and I actually stopped around like a few episodes in. I had stopped because I was like, I'm done. I kind of got bored with it. I wasn't even using an audio editor. I was, you know, recording on cell phones, recording on like a little pocket recorder I had. Just kind of the audio was all over the place. But then initially I was uploading to Podomatic, right? Mm -hmm. I was paying for that. Yeah. And um, I guess you can request episodes. So I kept getting like emails about so-and-so is requesting another episode of Dana's Monster. And I was like, oh, maybe I should finish this thing. So with that 
I guess, knowledge that somebody was out there listening to this little thing that I was recording in my living room. You know, that's where that last episode of the first season comes in. And that's where I started to build out the the world of Diana's Monster. Dynasty Monster ended, right? A couple of years ago? Yes. You know, I was like, this third season is going to be the last. I'm done. Like, I just don't have anything else to give. I'm becoming a teacher. You know, the pandemic, we were in the middle of the pandemic. And when it ended, I knew, like, this is going to be the end for a bit. Like, I kind of have had in my head this sort of loose idea of how I would continue it or how I would continue to build out that world, whether it's a spinoff. And this isn't really a spoiler for for the show, I guess, for anyone who hasn't listened to it. But um, while I was, I guess, studying to become a teacher, I was working as a tutor um, at a high school. And we went into this lockdown, a uh, hard lockdown for what was suspected to be students on campus with weapons, right? Mm, and yeah. so just that experience of being locked in a classroom for, I want to say like four hours with a bunch of scared children really kind of, I mean, it's the weirdest place to get inspiration from, but I kind of have this loose idea of what a season four would look like. And I've actually written about six or seven scripts, which include a time jump for a season four of Diana's Monster. I just haven't really decided if that's the avenue that I want to go down because yeah. uh, it's got a new main character. It's got a new location, but it sort of focuses on a lockdown uh, that has happened at a local high school and and how that's connected to uh, the world of Diana's monster, or if it's connected. You've also continued to work in podcasting a little bit in the audio drama sphere. Uh, you're involved with Batman Stained Air. Is that right? Uh, yes, I am. Well, tell me about that. So Batman Stained Air is the fan fiction love letter to the DC universe. Um, it is written by uh, the Legion of Geeks, uh, Jason Ortega, and he's got this pretty big following Last year, about this time, he had posted that he was looking to create an audio series focused on like his version of Batman and Batman's relationship with Jason Todd, who was formerly the Red Hood. And it was just kind of like sending out feelers, you know, and I follow his posts because I follow him on Instagram. And I kind of just thought, hey, let me um, reach out and tell him. Like you're going down a, a really tough road. Let me just give you some insights. I really didn't think he would respond because at that point he had had hundreds of people DMing him to audition. And that's not what I wanted to do. I don't consider myself a voice actor by any means. Voice acting has mostly been out of necessity, right? Mm. So I reached out to him and then I became sort of the right hand man uh, when it comes to all things Batman stained air. I'm editing it. I'm coordinating performances. I'm putting all the drafts together and sending them to him, taking his notes and then doing the edit and then sending it off. And then he's uploading it and promoting it. So, yeah, it's really interesting to work within an existing intellectual property world. I guess DC is pretty OK with fan uh, broadcasts of this nature. And um, there are a lot of fan, I guess, produced DC works. So as a as a teacher, uh, I'm very aware of like copyright and plagiarism yeah. and things like that. So right. the only part in Batman Stained Air that is vocally mine um, is at the beginning and the end where I'm like, hey, we have nothing to do with uh, DC. This is <laughs> this is nonprofit. You know, we're not we're not affiliated or associated with any of these people. Please don't sue us. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back and talk about um, Diana's monster. What do you think of when you think about this show? The first thing that comes to mind is my mother. Um, so, so my mother's name is Diana. Growing up, my siblings and I were either the Rugrats or the Monsters. And so that's kind of where that title came from, because I am sort of my mother's monster. I had originally started it as a National Novel Writing Month story. So NaNoWriMo every November. Right. And so growing up, we would go and visit our hometown because that's where my, where my biological father still is, um, mostly. And so there was this 
sort of hmm, I'm trying to figure out how to how to put it. But whenever my mother's name would come up, it was almost like she didn't exist. Hmm. You know, small town where where she where she's from and where they're from. It was always his son and not hers. We were hmm. always his children and not hers, even though he wasn't involved really in raising us. And I thought that was kind of odd. So I was like, what did she do to these people that they don't want to talk about her? And so that sort of became the the story of Diana's monster, the text. And then when it came time or when I decided, hey, I could totally do audio drama. I was like, how do you tell this story about this woman now? The character of Marty, who I voice, right, the main character, um, was completely made up just for the audio drama because I wanted to have that sort of like black tape sort of investigative feel. And um, that's where uh, Marty was created. The story, at least season one, seems to be a kind of true crime podcast. Even though you, Kevin Brandon, uh, are the <laughs> author of this story, on the podcast, it says that it's created by Martin Cruz. So mm-hmm. you're kind of doing this this thing where you are presenting this fictional story as if it were real. It's a story about Diana Harris, who is from this little tiny town, who is believed to be a monster or to control a monster. The flames didn't want to be put out. Water made it worse. You're saying the fire had a mind of its own? No, not at all. That would be ridiculous. I'm just saying it was a long night, and it only got longer. What happened? When the flames finally did die down, we found... Um, I'm sorry. Take all the time you need. John brings his clenched fist to his mouth and furrows his brow. For a second, his eyes water, and then he clears his throat. And he's stolid, a brick wall, impenetrable. Bodies, several of them. Laid in a circle, their hands pointed away, flat on their backs. An image comes to mind so inappropriate I can hardly believe myself. I'm thinking of the Power Rangers and the old Saban logo. Golden children with their arms extended toward the heavens as they're spread around the circumference of a globe. She put them there. The Harris girl. All of them. She put them in there. And she set them. The first episode, at least, which, by the way, is called The New Halloween. Yes. Um, the first episode doesn't really hint to any supernatural cause. I mean, people say they talk about a monster and some people speculate, oh, she's a monster. But it could be just talk, right? You know, just how people talk sometimes. Yes. Or they say things. Given the fact that you've got sort of this kind of based in reality kind of feeling and the fact that you're presenting this explicitly not as an audio drama, but rather as kind of a faux true crime kind of thing, were you attempting to sort of lead people into this cinema verite kind of thing? I think in the presentation, at least in that first episode, um, I I knew that I wanted to kind of, uh, hey, you know, there's no monster here. Like there's there's nothing happening that's supernatural or um, out of the ordinary. It's just small town gossip. Right. I knew that I had to end with this monster being seen and being real at the season finale. Like I knew that this monster has to make an appearance that I have to kind of like break the, the the doors open of this thing. But going into it, yeah, I just wanted I wanted everyone to constantly be in question about like what is happening? Like and and is there a monster? Is there not a monster? Is it actually just people's like shared psychosis? Um <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that kind of, you know, scapegoating became a thing. And I feel like that's what Diana's Monster does a lot is it talks about like the people who are out of the ordinary and how they are scapegoated for um, just being different. 
I was hoping that someone would think, hey, is Evanston real? And I'm very particular about the city boundaries and what, how it's unincorporated and how they get power and how they get sure. water and all that stuff. Because right. right. that's just kind of the fun of it is there are a lot of really small spaces and, uh, and towns and cities in Texas that you can come across that won't be on a map. And that yeah. was sort of my, uh, my goal with Evanston was that it could be real. It could exist. If it could exist, then the people there exist. And if they exist, then this thing that happened to them could have existed. Yeah. So the first episode, we we get to meet Martin Cruz, who is the narrator of the story, the investigator. And he, like you, uh, was adopted Mm -hmm. and is researching his family history. It turns out to be a complete coincidence, though, that that (laughs) a Diana Harris has nothing to do with him and his family, but she and he both were from the area. Uh, And so he stumbles across this legend or a story of Diana Harris, who uh, in this small town of Evanston, Texas, is believed to have set a fire that killed several people, all of whom were related to her in some way. She herself is believed to be dead, although some people say they don't believe it. But the town treated her as a scapegoat. Um, In fact, you even have a line in the first episode where blame the girl is the town's unofficial town motto. Helen is 62 and devout. She pushed her son into sports at an early age. He asked me if he could take a dance class. I knew his father would beat him to death if he saw his boy dancing, so I taught him to throw a baseball. I guess that limp wrist was good for something. He was gorgeous, a real lady killer. But he didn't want anything to do with the ladies until he met that woman, the Harris girl, the monster. Garth Allen was still in high school when he and Diana started dating? He told me he met her at his salon. She was studying to become a beautician. How funny is that? A monster studying to become a beautician? He was how old? 17. And you were okay with this? She had a vagina. All I cared is she wasn't a man. So what happened then? They dated during the senior year. The summer after, that's when she went missing. Garth Allen was raving, going on about some conspiracy, some cover-up. That's why I want to reach out to him, actually. There is a lot of small-minded, homophobic, and backwards-thinking opinions that come out of the mouths of some of the people in this Evanston, Texas town. Talk to me about why you wanted to highlight this, this idea of scapegoating and this idea of blame as part of the story. Like I said, it goes back to um, visiting my mother's hometown and, and this like I said, they won't say her name. Yeah. Um, and, and that was sort of what I encountered, you know, at the grocery stores there was, oh, this is Kevin. He's he's so-and-so's son. And I'm actually like, actually, I'm my mother's son, right? Yeah. Uh, she she raised me. She was very young when she got pregnant. So uh, my mother was 14 when she got pregnant and 15 when she had my oldest brother. So, yeah. And and that was there in that small town. And even then I would tell my, my, my grandmother when she was alive, like, you were just okay with that. And she was just like, well, it was what it was. And like, she could have been with a, a worse man. And, and then, and then for my biological father to go and have my step siblings with a woman who was even younger than my mother. So and just that idea of like of what you see like in a show like Twin Peaks, where it's just these small towns and and everything is in the whispers, right? Everyone knows everything, but they won't say it aloud. You know, you have the people getting their hair done at the at the at the salon and just all the gossip that happens. And the I guess the idea of like finding the truth somewhere in all of that whispering was really intriguing to me this blew my mind there's this there's the the town actually has a a holiday and this is the title the new halloween Mm -hmm. uh the new halloween refers to this unofficial town holiday when 
everyone in town picks on the Harris family. Apparently it's an ongoing thing, but they steal mm. the mailbox, they break in and they do pranks. And there's this one prank in particular on the night before the fire that um, it really just goes off the rails. Patricia has braces, which she says were due to be removed years ago. Since she lost her job and in insurance, she can't afford to have them removed. I was 16. I didn't think nothing of it. It was like a holiday. The 4th of July or Thanksgiving. July 23rd, the new Halloween. I don't know why we tortured the Harrises. It was just something that we did. Prejudice is a learned behavior. Right, whatever. Do you mind if I smoke? No, please. Patricia and her friends were years younger than Diana, but like she says, torturing her was a way to pass the time. People held prayer circles and led vigils. The kids, we'd toilet paper the house. It had to be Charmin. Charmin toilet tissue? This is not a paid advertisement. I shit you not. In a town so poor that the shop owners had to bolt rolls of bathroom tissue to the stalls and lock up laundry detergent and razors, the family splurged. Your parents encouraged your behavior? Encouraged. It was their idea. This casual cruelty just really strikes me. Is that something you think of when you think of small town life? Oof, a, a lot of people in small towns are going to get mad at me, but I do. But I actually grew up until about the time I was seven or eight in Fredericksburg here in Texas, which is a very small German town. Now it's all about tourism. So they've got like wineries and things like that. Yeah. But yeah. Um, there are certain like zoning laws where, where they can't have like modern like amenities like a Chili's or like a McDonald's or even a theater like within the actual incorporated town itself because right. they're so devoted to like the German tourism. And so growing up there, I feel like there was a lot of that. Like you could be driving in a really nice neighborhood and then you'd pass over the bridge, right? The river or the lake. And then all of a sudden you're in a trailer park. So it was just that weird, like one road is like literally the wrong side of the tracks type of thing. I feel like if you're on the wrong side of the tracks, then, then absolutely you're the target of some criticism, if not cruelty. Tell me about your actors, because you use this sort of very conversational documentary style of speech in the first episode. Most of the season one crew are just people that I sort of I feel like I, I wrestled them and, you know, I, I wore them down into doing it. And a lot of coworkers from H-E-B. So I, I think at one point I thanked the cast of H-E-B 24, which was the grocery store that I was working at, just because nice. they would be in the break room, like recording on into my phone. Uh, I had a little Zoom microphone attachment or they would be sending me files uh, literally on the bus. <laughs> and so, uh, and then a couple of them are family members. Um, and then at the time I had a couple of roommates who lived here with us. Um, it's friends. I don't think I actually got any real actors until I started uh, season two, in which case I actually was like, hey, you're an actor, come do this thing for me. But I just wasn't confident enough to ask my friends who were actors to give me the time, the unpaid time to, to be featured in season one. Diana's Monster starts with this investigation into the fire that killed these people um, and also caused Diana to vanish. As the series goes along, it does take on a more supernatural tone, right? Would you say it's sort of a horror piece or how would you describe it? Ah, uh, oof. I struggle with that a lot. Like, how do you talk about this little thing that I did? <laughs> I want to say there's definitely elements of horror. For me, when I sit down to write, I try to bring all those things in because, uh, and this is going to sound super writerly and like cheesy, but like, you know, everyday life is not one genre. So I, I feel like I tried to write a, a horror piece, but ended up writing this weird uh, Frankenstein's creature 
I have to admit, the hook is pretty interesting. It, it does hook you like a true crime podcast might. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, you had three seasons so far of Diane's yes. Monster. How did the show evolve over time after the first season? I participate in National Novel Writing Month every November. Okay. And so after I had finished the first season or had gotten as close to finished as I could before I stopped and then came out with that last episode or two, I had actually had already written a second story, which was completely unrelated to Diana's Monster. And it was set in New Mexico and it was following this detective who was looking into this organ harvesting ring that was happening. Mm. I kind of was sitting with my best friend at the time because I was like, I don't even know where to go with season two. Like, do I even want to do a season two? Like, we kind of left it open with a cliffhanger. He said, well, it's the same story. Like, it's the same story. Like, you have the same elements of being an outcast. You have the same elements of wanting to get to the bottom of something. And so how do you connect this and and how do you connect them? And so that's where we sat down and started mapping out the connections between the Detective Calderon story. uh, And then how do we link that to Marty and what's happening in Evanston? And then that kind of, again, set the stage for what became season three. So we sat down and mapped out season two and season three at the same time. How do you feel about that first episode and how it turned out? Uh, I, I cringe every time I listen to it. Why is that? The thing I like to tell my students and, and it's sort of become my own uh, mantra is that nothing is ever done. It's just done enough. And I feel like with that first episode, it wasn't even done enough. I genuinely posted it thinking nobody's ever going to listen to this thing. It doesn't matter. It was just for me. And then to find out that I had an audience for this and people were drawing fan art of Marty. (laughs) Hey, that's me. Somebody drew me as Marty. Knowing now that there is an audience for this type of story, I would have put a little bit more affection and care into that first episode. So what do you struggle with? Time management, for sure. (laughs) Now that I am teaching as my full time, you know, career and even with still, you know, editing for for Jason Ortega and figuring out what I want to do next. Right. That's sort of been the the lack of time management that it's sort of revealed to me that if I don't build out chunks of time specifically to do these things I want to do they're not going to get done. So right now I have to have, okay, I'm going to spend a few hours video gaming. Then I'm going to spend a few hours writing. Then I'm going to spend a few hours cleaning. And uh, and now now I'm going to write for a couple hours. So it's just kind of making sure that I keep myself on track. And I feel like that's the hardest thing to do. Yeah. When you have responsibilities that demand your attention, like a job or family or (laughs) cleaning, right, then it's easy to put the stuff that maybe doesn't demand your attention, immediate attention on hold. And then suddenly it's two weeks later and you haven't picked it up and done anything with it. So story of my life. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I do want to ask you for your perspective on something. I grew up in the South. I was fortunate that most of the people I was sort of surrounded with at the time were fairly progressive minded, but you could not escape the kind of homophobia that existed in the South in the 1970s and 80s. So it was there in the schools and all that kind of stuff. So I certainly saw it. But our society has made strides, you know, with gay marriage and, mm-hmm. you know, and all that and, and so forth. But then I look at the headlines today and we're specifically there's a lot of bad stuff happening for trans folks. I guess I'm curious. A lot of the themes of Diana's Monster is about uh, harassment and bullying, and it's about small town views and, and narrow mindedness. I- I'm wondering, what is your perspective? I mean, have things gotten better? So here is where I would have to acknowledge my own 
privilege um, to, to, I I guess, the fact that I exist in the space that I do, because to see me, I guess, outside or even, you know, walking the halls of my school or at the grocery store, at a theater or the mall, I I guess I don't come off as outwardly queer. I I mean, you know, I, I don't know what that means but like people yeah. would say like oh I, I would never thought that you were queer and i'm like yeah. oh thank you <laughs> you know but i i guess i'm just <clears throat> i guess i don't have the 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 lisp or that they want me to have or or whatever it, it is to be like stereotypically queer and that's not on purpose i just i am who i am right but i also never had to come out Growing up, my mother was always just like, you know, you do whatever makes you happy, whoever you are, I love you no matter what. So there was no real conversation with my mother. Even when I was living with my my now spouse, there was never a conversation or, or a question of of who I was. And, and I never had to, you know, have that conversation where I was like, hey, just so you know, this is what I like. Uh, this is who I am. Because I never felt the need, right? Like my my siblings never had to sit down with, with my mother and say, hey, you know, I'm straight. <laughs> I just refused to engage in that. Yeah, I think it goes to, again, to scapegoating, right? Like, we don't want to talk about the problems that we should be talking about. So let's create this conversation that's not based in any factual, you know, statistic or anything about the dangers of of a trans person. You know, on Saturday, Travis, you know, my husband and I went and saw Hairspray here at the Majestic Theater. And everyone loved it. Like, you know, yeah. and, and, and Edna is played by a man in drag. Right. And I'm like, this is illegal in Tennessee <laughs> right now because we're watching a drag show and there yeah. are children in the audience and it's a public space. It's just insane to me to think that like that poses a danger. But at the same time, we have like my nephew, right? My, my brother's son who just turned two is wearing, you know, t-shirts that say like ladies, man, or we have beauty pageants for little girls where they're all dolled up and, and wearing the, you know, the skimpiest of clothing. And I'm just like, that's what it is to sexualize a child. This is just performing. So how do you measure success? I like this question a lot and I'm going to, I'm going to deviate before I come back to my answer. Um, so last year, um, was my first year of teaching and a lot of students had made it this far. Again, there were three quarters of the way through there's 10 weeks left in school after spring break. A lot of them at this point get burnt out just like the teachers do and they want to quit. And I said, you know, don't quit. Don't, don't drop out of school. You're so close to graduating. I got the question of, well, why is any of this important? Like, I don't want to do anything. I'm not going to go to college. And I was like, well, what do you want to do? And one of my students told me he wanted to be a homeless person. (laughs) And I said, well, if you want to be homeless, be the best homeless person you can be. That's what success looks like for you. Then do it to the best of your ability. But know that when I'm driving to school in the morning and I see you there with your little tin can, that I'm not going to stop and and give you money because you've made this decision on your own. (laughs) So um, to me, success is it's not having 100,000 followers. It's did I meet and achieve my goal? And if I didn't, did I get close? And I, and I feel like with the three seasons that I have of Dana's Monster, that's as close to success as I was going to get for that series, whether or not I continue it or, or completely pivot. Right. But that has led to this collaboration with the Legion of Geeks, Jason Ortega and Batman. And now I can say, you know, I started with this little show that I made in my kitchen on a cell phone. And now I am editing this podcast that has a listener base of 60 plus thousand streams. I feel like that's pretty good and pretty close to to what success looks like. It sounds like you are still interested and excited about doing audio drama. I absolutely am. I would love to get back to my own works because while editing Batman Stained Air has been a lot of 
exposure. It's it's what I do with that. That's going to be the me piece of it, because this is not my Batman piece. I would like to have that same attention. And that's, you know, now that I've gotten it, I've gotten a taste for it. Um, I joke with my students all the time that Mr. Brandon loves the spotlight, Um, (laughs) you know, so as I've gotten more confident in myself and in my abilities to do these things, um, it's like, hey, let's use that confidence. But for my own piece, because I don't want to be the Batman guy. I want to be the guy. Here's what I do know. Diana Edith Harris is missing or dead. She was last seen on the day I was born in Evanston, Texas. It is a widely held belief among the people of Evanston that Diana Harris is a monster, or controlled one. And there's also the fire that burned the Atascosa turkey plant to a crisp along with the seven people inside. Or was it two fires? Patricia believes Diana lashed out that she had had enough, while Garth Allen believes... Well, that... I don't know. But I'm going to find out. Next time, on Diana's Monster. Diana's Monster uses the true crime podcast style to great effect immersing you in the small world and small perspectives of its fictional town, where blame covers up the truth. You can listen to Diana's Monster on most major podcast platforms or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. This show is a production of Alien Ghost Robot Creative Media. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or are an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our website at thefirstepisodeof.com. We're happy to be a part of the Audio Drama Lab, a Discord-based resource for audio drama development and networking. Check it out at audiodramalab.com telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. I know you got questions about him. Where did he come from? How did he do all those things they say he did? Was he a terrorist? Was he crazy? Was his skin really blue? Well, I'll tell you what I know. I was there with him. Driving through the back roads under the stars, I was witness to wonders and miracles, and to the darkness that's coursing through the veins of our country. He came to fight it in his own strange way, but no one leaves that fight unchanged. Not even Rael. People ought to know the truth. And I was there. The Book of Constellations is a down-to-earth sci-fi road trip. It's audio fiction, and you can find episodes at bookofconstellations.com or wherever you get your podcasts.